touch your spirit. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building on it. Each builder must choose with care how to build on it. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one that has been laid. That foundation is Jesus Christ. Do you know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Do not deceive yourself. If you think that you are wise in this age, you should become fools so that you may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast about human leaders, for all things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all belong to you, and you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. This ends our first reading. As we come to our gospel reading this morning, I invite you to read along with me um, from the Gospel of Matthew, the fifth chapter, verses 38 through 48. Like the rest of the service, the bolded portions are for all of you. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evildoer. But if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, and if anyone wants to sue you and take your coat, and if anyone forces you to go one mile, You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be children of your God in heaven. For God makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? Than others. Do not even the Gentiles. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I always get stuck on the be perfect. Mm, scary. Oh. 
So during the height of the pandemic, I, like probably many of you, found myself on the couch a lot. We would camp out, our family, in front of Netflix and just binge everything that was possible. So my kids and I launched into an epic rewatch on Netflix of the show Glee. If you don't know Glee, it follows the exploits of a bunch of misfit high school youth who are trying to figure out who they are. They're trying to figure out where they fit in this world and particularly in the microcosm that is high school, which is not always the easiest. They uh, explored this in the show, to my delight as a musical theater lover, through fully staged musical numbers that are totally unrealistic but were quite enjoyable uh, during the pandemic and lifted our spirits a lot. In one episode called The Substitute, they kind of set up Mr. Schuster, who was the normal Glee teacher, as this harsh teacher, which was kind of weird, but in that episode, I'll just accept it for what it was. Not the best written show, but enjoyable. So Mr. Schuster was a tyrant, and he got sick, and he goes out uh, with the flu. He's going to be out for the whole week. So the Glee kids are freaking out. What are they going to do? They can't live without rehearsals. So they recruit a substitute to take over the Glee club for the week. So they arrange for Miss Holly Holiday to come and take over their rehearsals. And she is a big hit. She is received like a breath of fresh air. She's all about fun and energy. And she lets those students do whatever they want. As someone who was a high school teacher for a skinny second, she freaks me out. But, of course, the students were going to love Holly Holiday. She let them do whatever. You want to, thought came in their head, let's do it. Let's make it happen. But things quickly got carried away, as you can imagine. A bunch of overly emotional Theater kids, imaginations went all over the place, and it quickly got carried away. But what the show helped to depict was that when it really mattered, Holly Holiday wasn't there for them. She wasn't providing the guidance and support that these young people really needed when everything began to fall apart. And then in the Glee Club, you had half the kids begging for Mr. Schuster to come back, even if he coughed all over them, and the other half just wanting Miss Holiday to keep up the party. My guess is that the church in Corinth would be able to relate to these competing leadership styles that were presented in Glee. You see, in the ancient city of Corinth, where Paul planted his beloved church, it was a thriving metropolis. It was situated on an important trade route, so wealth flowed in and through that community, like almost unlike every other city in the early days of the church. Earlier in the book, in Paul's letter, Paul acknowledges that this was such an important city that he was not the only apostle who was visiting. He was not the only one 
who was providing leadership. He was not the only one planting churches there. And Paul was concerned about cliques beginning to form around different leaders, including himself and Apollos. The Christians there were beginning to bicker among themselves about which leader was the best. They were bickering about what the role of the wealthy should have in the church. They were bickering about how the members of the church should relate to one another. We don't, we don't know anything about church bickering, do we? Unfortunately, whenever we come to Paul's letters, it is too easy for us to see ourselves in what he is writing to those early Christians. It is too easy to see ourselves in the divisions that existed in those days. Life just keeps proving again and again that not much has changed. We live in a world dominated by divisive politics, by differing opinions about the role of the church and how church members should relate to one another and how we are called to relate to the world around us. With this in mind, it makes sense that Paul's call to unity in Christ seems all too important to us. Let's be one. Let us come together. But it's really important that we pay attention to Paul's words here. Paul doesn't call the members of his church to strive for unity based on Paul's beliefs and personality. He doesn't call the church in Corinth to fall in line behind any particular leader. Instead, in verse 10, Paul refers to himself as a skilled master builder. The Greek word that the NRSV translates as skilled is sophos, which means wise. As a wise master builder, Paul builds with what he has been given. Paul builds with Christ himself, and in particular, more specifically, Christ builds with the stories and the reality of Christ's crucifixion and resurrection. These, those realities of Christ's life are the foundation of the church upon which all should be built. The true foundations of our lives, of our faith, upon which everything else relates. This is where our unity lies. So here's a little confession of mine. There is this non-denominational church in Cleveland Heights. It is right beside the campus of Case Western Reserve University. It happens to be very close to the coffee shop where I like to go and write so I can clear my head and not have my kids asking for, where's dinner? What Can I fix me something? So I'll go to this coffee shop and I'll look out and I'll see this non-denominational church no problem with non-denominational churches. I get it. But they have this marquee that is like a movie theater, and it lights up and it flashes lights. Um, And from my favorite seat, I just always see their slogan popping up, and it, it drives me insane. 
literally insane. Their slogan is, make Jesus famous. Cringe, right? Like, am I the only one? It, It just makes me cringe. It literally makes me insane. And every time I see it, I'm trying to write. And now I've had to turn my back to the window because it has taken me away from the Spirit of God. Um, It offends me. I can't help it. So the charismatic leaders of this congregation see this slogan as a call to evangelism. Right? Like, oh, tell the stories of Jesus. Make him famous so that everyone will know who he is. They view it as this call to share the good news of Jesus with people. But as I sit in that coffee shop, people have begun to laugh at me because they'll see the scowl on my face every time it blinks and I'll turn. And so it's led to really fun and interesting conversations with the young adults who are graduate students that live in that area, many of whom have visited the church because it's literally right there. So they tell me that they visited and that they feel the slogan is an attempt, in their words, to play on the worst impulses of our culture. A culture that is obsessed with celebrity and notoriety. The pastors, they tell me, are very engaging, very fashionable. They have their skinny jeans on. They have short, pithy messages Their services are slick and well-produced, like television shows. Serving up a version of the gospel that is a mile wide and an inch deep. Those are their words. Not surprised to hear them with a slogan of make Jesus famous. But again, I'm confessing here, so atonement. I truly do not mean to stand here and tear down another congregation's attempt to share the gospel. I do not mean to say that they are doing everything wrong, and we, our Rocky River Presbyterian Church, are PCUSA, we are mainline, and we know how things are done. We have our organ, we have choirs that sing, we have handbells, we have the corner on the market that's really Not what I'm trying to say, but I will admit that I have sat in that coffee shop and stewed about Make Jesus Famous for years. I have actually avoided inviting those pastors to meetings of the religious community in the Heights because I just felt their version of faith was shallow and superficial. I have avoided that relationship. So as I was sitting in Phoenix this week, reading scripture, preparing for the sermon, it was like, bam! Paul was holding up a mirror for me to view myself. The church in Corinth, I could have been right there in the divisions, feeling like I knew better than what Christ was calling us to do. I felt that Jesus was looking at me and saying, the temple is much bigger than you can imagine. It's actually very big and very diverse. Bigger than your definition of diversity, Eric. 
In verse 16, Paul says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? But y'all, we have to be careful. Paul's letter to the church in Corinth was to a church. Paul didn't write to the pastor. Paul didn't write to his favorite member of the church and just talk to them. Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. In our individualistic society, it is easy to think that Paul was just talking to me, to you, to one person in Corinth. But Paul was talking to the church in Corinth, to everybody. The Greek here is plural. Paul was using, in my opinion, the most perfect contraction ever, y'all. Paul was really saying, do y'all not know that y'all are God's temple? And even better, that God's spirit dwells in all y'all. The most perfect contraction in the world. God dwells in each and every one of us. God dwells in me. God dwells in you. God dwells in every person here at Rocky River. And God dwells in every person in that wonderful, blessed congregation that is trying to make Jesus famous. God dwells in each and every one of us. And together... Together, we bear the image of Christ to the world. Paul reminds us, though, to be wary of how we bear that witness into the world. That our witness should be built upon the foundation of Christ and not upon the foolish wisdom of the world that thinks that we know the only and best way Followers of Christ should not look for the most popular leader or the most popular slogan. They should also not ignore the popular slogans. We should not look for the best music. We should not look for the best dressed. We should, we should not look for those that just make everything fun and exciting. We should look for leaders who point us towards the life of Christ, toward the death and the resurrection of the one who is our living water, to the one who offers us the bread of life in the cup of salvation, toward the one who calls us to follow. But what does this look like? The creators of the lectionary gave us the perfect example in the Gospel of Matthew to help us frame our witness in the world. The world is pretty clear about how it expects people to act. If someone hurts us, we are expected to strike back, to inflict harm. In fact, I would say that the world expects us to strike first if we perceive an attack is coming. I have a 15-year-old daughter, and trust me, that is how the world expects. The world expects us to keep what is ours, to hold on for dear life, to the things that we have worked hard to accumulate. 
The world expects us to cling tightly to our neighbors, but unfortunately the world keeps rewriting the definition of neighbor so that the pool of candidates gets smaller and smaller while the definition of enemy keeps getting larger and larger and broader and broader. That is the foolishness of the world. To see enemies wherever we go, to avoid, to avoid inviting clergy colleagues to meetings because we probably won't agree, to gather in our little communities to be safe, to be like-minded, to cling to what is ours at all cost. Foolishness. Foolishness. But Christ and Paul invite us to look at the world differently. They invite us to see the y'all. They invite us to see the y'all. Having been in ministry for over 20 years now, I have come to understand that we all experience God in different ways. That make Jesus famous slogan might drive me absolutely insane, but it might find, but there are a lot of people that will find it meaningful and a way for them to be invited in to experience the gospel of Christ in ways that change their lives and lead them to healing and wholeness. And they are no less bearers of God's spirit than I am. When we go out into the world, we are the temple of God. And when we encounter those we love, when we encounter those that we don't know, when we encounter those we consider our enemies, we are expected to see the y'all. To see that all people have a place in God's temple. That all of us are bearers of Christ's love in Christ's spirit, active and present in the world. To see that those with whom we disagree are also bearers of Christ's image, part of Christ's temple, and they carry it out into the world to engage. As such, we are invited to a different way of being in the world. Frederick Buechner has written that in the Christian sense, love is not primarily an emotion, but an act of will. When Jesus tells us to love our neighbors, he is not telling us to love them in some sense of cozy, emotional feelings. In his terms, we can love them without necessarily liking them because love is an action, it's a thing that we do. When we see ourselves and those we encounter as part of Paul's y'all, as a piece of God's holy temple, we begin to see God in one another. And we respond in kind. In this highly contentious world, our call to unity won't always be rooted in believing the same things, but rather in the y'all of God's love. Our call to unity is based in the fact that Christ died not just for my sins, not just for your sins, 
Not even our sins. But Christ died for the sins of our enemies, for the sins of the despised of the world, for the sins of the beloved of the world. Christ died for all y'all. Our unity comes from the heart of God and flows out into the world from a babe found in a manger and echoes out into the world from an empty tomb. So let our unity be an act of will. Let us love all y'all. Let us love and be bearers of Christ's spirit, even when we disagree, even when we don't like each other. Let our unity be an act of will to love and serve the Lord and to be Christ's witness in all that we do. Amen.